Good evening. I hope Evergreen is staying safe, and I hope you're staying connected. <clears throat> We're trying to uh, maintain our our abilities to to know what's going on in the lives of our people, to be involved in pastoral care, to help any way we can. But it's important for you to continue to stay connected with us and with each other. I've often told you uh, how extraordinary it is when God gives me lessons to teach and uh, and they become incredibly uh, timely and relevant uh, by the time I actually get to that teaching series. I, uh, I've been teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians on Wednesday evenings since last August, so uh, it's about 22 or 24 lessons long, that complete series, and, and we just finished it recently. And I had planned several months ago to follow up that uh, extended book, that letter to uh, probably the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament. I decided to follow it up by teaching the rest of this spring through the short letters of First and Second Thessalonians, primarily because that is uh, one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. But I see how incredibly relevant and timely this is because of where we are, where we find ourselves today, uh, sort of the new normal that we're contemplating and what life looks like today and tomorrow and maybe next week. First and Second Thessalonians are letters written to a great church. In fact, the only church that we have letters recorded for in the New Testament, it's the only church that is commended as an example for other churches to follow. Their influence in, in Thessalonica extended far beyond their physical location. And Paul often pointed to this church as a standard uh, a bar that he said that other churches were to strive for. I think that this is a timely message for Evergreen because going all the way back to our uh, anniversary uh, sermon in December of, of last year, uh, I told you that my conviction coming out of sabbatical last summer was that God is calling us as a church to a greater level of influence I've seen our leadership drawn on as resources from other churches. We've seen an increase in invitations to go and teach and train and speak to other churches. I've seen my own personal uh, inbox uh, have increased interaction with other pastors who are asking about how to do church, how to structure church, how to lead in a church. I think our people, by and large, are... Uh, being put in positions to highlight discipleship and one-on-one -on -one mentoring, the kinds of things that we do around here, missions, discipleship, ministry to those who are in need, pastoral care, uh, fellowship and community, the things that are the defining traits of Evergreen are the very things that the churches around us are struggling to get to and, and, and hoping to discover how to do. And so God's put us in a position of influence. I think the letters to the first, to the Thessalon, the Thessalonian church, uh, I think this is a critical model for us to know how to be an influential church in our generation. Secondly, the theme of much of this, of this, these two letters is how to be a great church 
in the last days, how to have a correct understanding of, of the, the storyline that God is unfolding, how to, how to have confidence in what is coming and what we need to do. I think this is incredibly relevant because whatever our new normal is, whatever society begins to look like as it takes shape in, in, in the third decade of the 21st century, uh, the church is going to have to figure out how to be the church in some new ways. And I think that these, uh, these lessons that will cover uh, end times, Paul in these letters speaks about the Antichrist. He speaks about a great falling away theologically as people leave the faith. We need to have a handle on these passages of Scripture because I think the very days Paul is talking about may be a part of the new normal that we're getting ready to live. That doesn't mean we have fear. That doesn't mean that we uh, that we have to run and hide. We will, in fact, grieve some of what we've lost in the way of life that we've been used to. But I think this is an exciting moment for the church to be the church. And I think First and Second Thessalonians over the next several weeks will prove to be timely lessons that the Holy Spirit uses to teach Evergreen about how to be who we've been called to be. I appreciate you watching this. I hope that you'll feel free to recommend to other people. Uh, one of the reasons we put the teaching of God's Word uh, online is, is first and most importantly to strengthen our church family. But we also put it out there so that the Word can be circulated far beyond what one person standing in one location can do. So you feel free to encourage other people that you know uh, to watch lessons, particularly when you think that there is a, a, a relevance and, a, and an impact in your life, pass that along to somebody else and, and let them uh, be a part of, of the teaching that we're going to do. I'm going to continue to teach on Sunday mornings as we try and figure out when we'll be able to meet together again. Uh, but I'm also going to teach uh, a lesson each week that will be available by uh, late in the day or early evening on Wednesdays because I really want to have that second opportunity each week to speak with you, to teach the Word of God, and it will help create some uh, encouragement, I hope, but also some level of normalcy. If we have a cycle of teaching that, that is Sunday morning and midweek and Sunday morning and midweek. So I will be faithful on this end, and I, I pray that you'll uh, make use of this on your end and circulate it however you see fit. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at the first chapter in this in this lesson, and, but I want to uh, I want to give some background. Thessalonica uh, had an established church that the Apostle Paul uh, founded on his second missionary journey. That was in Acts chapter seventeen. We'll look at that in just a minute. That's the the historical context of these letters. Uh, Thessalonica, ancient Thessalonica, was located in the present day Balkans. And in Paul's day, it probably was a city of about 200,000 people. It wasn't as large as Rome, but it was a major city 
It was ethnically diverse because it was a trade center for that part of the Roman Empire. So people came far and wide. It's interesting to me how often the gospel was planted, churches were started. I I think this is a design of the Holy Spirit, but I think Paul was strategically a, a, a good thinker. He loved to plant churches in in crossroads cities where people would come for trade and and return uh, in every different direction. Part of what spread the gospel across the, the Roman Empire was not just the Apostle Paul planting churches, but it was the gospel itself being carried by nameless, unknown, new believers who discovered it in their travels and took it to their homes. That's still the pattern, frankly. Uh, across the world today. We're going to eavesdrop in this letter, as I've often reminded you. Anytime we study Paul's letters, we're eavesdropping on only one side of a pastoral conversation. Paul is is talking to the church, and we have to sort of figure out the, the issues that he's facing, the, the questions that he's answering, by looking at what he has to say. Um, remember that as much as he's going to teach us here, especially about end times topics, first and second Thessalonians are not primarily a detailed theological discourse. Paul is not writing to answer every curiosity, every question that we might have about the last days. Predominantly, these are letters of pastoral affirmation and encouragement. He's giving them significant theology, but he's giving them the theology that they need to live today in their generation. And so we're going to have to be content with that. We can't treat these books as though they are some end times paperback that we can buy for $5 on Amazon and it'll give us the timeline and all the answers about the last days. What we have to do is take what Paul gives us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and recognize that that's enough to build our confidence to live in the context of the day in which God has placed us. <coughs> the question really to be asked here is uh, Thessalonians is not only a book about, uh, about the end times, it's a book about the church. I've entitled uh, this lesson, The Art of Church Construction, because the question really in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians is, how do you build a great church? How do you recognize a great church when you see it? What traits characterize a great church? Paul knew the answers to these questions, and that's why he often pointed to the Thessalonican church as the example for other believers to find that. If we expect that Evergreen will be a great church by God's standards, then clearly we have to understand that it's not defined, a great church is not defined by size. It's not defined by programming. It's defined by these things that Paul will mention here. Basically, a great church is defined, uh, as a, as a place where a people demonstrate a faithfulness that pleases God. Paul's going to outline uh, those very things. And so let's look. Let's read the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, just uh, just 10 verses. And, and before we get to end times things, he's going to talk to us about the church. It's a great starting place for this conversation. Chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Thessalonians. Paul, 
Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your election, brothers loved by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, that last phrase, rescues us from the coming wrath, that's a hint about what he's going to talk about in this letter. That's a, that's a teaser. But before he talks about that, he wants to commend this church. And in the process of commending them, of, of acknowledging that they are doing church well, he's going to highlight some things that are valuable to us to understand what it means to be a great church. First of all, he's going to tell us what it, what it looks like to see a great church identified. In the first two verses, he obviously uh, introduces the letter. It comes from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus, often called Silas, was a regular traveling companion with Paul. Timothy was, uh, by Paul's own words, his son in the faith. Uh, it's not unusual for this team to be together as they uh, as they compose this letter. And so uh, Paul sends greetings from the entire team. But this is what he says. He's going he's gonna to identify a great church, first of all, by their position. This is what he says. I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word church, it's uh, when it shows up in the New Testament, let, let's talk about this just for a minute. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. And it was not a typically religious word before it was adopted into Christian use. It simply means assembly. But understand that as Paul was traveling on his missionary journeys across the Roman Empire, uh, he often started, as in Thessalonica, we'll see this in just a minute in, in Acts chapter 17, he often started by first going to a synagogue, if there was a synagogue there. Now, synagogue was simply a Jewish place of teaching and worship. A synagogue was available in any city where there were 10 Jewish households that could assemble together. When a place had enough uh, a Jewish population that they could have 10 men to serve as elders uh, from 10 different families, they could form a synagogue. 
The synagogue was the place of, of their teaching and worship, and Paul would initially go there. He would present evidence of, of, of how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He would argue the case that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for for generations, for hundreds of years. Uh, typically, he was not received well. Certainly in Thessalonica, he was not. And once he had given the opportunity to the Jews... He would then go to the Gentiles, and when he would find people that would come to Christ, when they would receive the gospel and believe, he would assemble them together, and they began to call this place the church or the ecclesia, the assembly. Now, he chose that word because, number one, he needed a word that would distinguish Christianity from Judaism. So he couldn't use the word synagogue. He actually, he wanted a Greek word. He didn't want a, a Hebrew word. And an assembly is, is really one of the, the core realities of what it means to be the church. I mean, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that, that as a part of our discipleship, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the custom of some. Now, obviously I'm preaching to an empty room right now. So there's some issues that are extraordinary in our particular moment. But the reality is, as soon as this health crisis passes, we're not going to stay online. We're going to be together because it is in the core value of the church of Jesus Christ that we do life together, that we be in community. And so the church, the word actually means assembly. So when people say... Um, yeah, I'm not against church. I, I I think church is fine. I just don't go. Well, then you have no understanding whatsoever that the very word itself implies that you don't do church unless you do it in assembly, in community with the people of God. Now, Paul's going to talk about how he uh, how he puts that that reality, that assembly, into a context. The first is by position. He says, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians. That is, I'm writing to a collection of Jesus followers who are in a particular geographic location, a specific field of mission. Listen, we've got flags hanging in this auditorium that represent countries across the world, and we do missions well. But that will never change the fact that Evergreen was birthed and given as a primary sphere of influence the Tulsa metro area. We are the people of Evergreen located in Tulsa, in Bigsby, in Broken Arrow, in Jinx, in Glenpool, in Coweta, in Owasa, in Collinsville, in Sand Springs. We are that church we have people from all over so we come here and we assemble and we do life together but guess what we go out from this place and we're still the church in all of those places that geographical assignment defines who we are and the way we do things but it's not only a geographical position but also a spiritual position because he says to the church of the thessalonians in god the father That is, this community that we have, this body of of believers that meet together, we are not just some uh, 
religious club that you join, we are a community with a higher purpose. We are a people in God the Father. But he also says, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of how we are unlike the world around us. One of the saddest things that can be said about a church is, why do I need that church? They're just like everywhere else I go in my life. Frankly, it doesn't matter what our geographical position is if we don't latch hold of our spiritual position, which is that we are the people of God. We have a higher purpose for what we do together. And we are in Christ Jesus. And that means we are a different people from the world around us. A great church is defined by its position, and a great church always knows its position. They know where their mission field is. They know what their assignment is, and they know who they are in Jesus Christ. A great church is also identified by prayer. Paul says in verse 2, we always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. Now, this is not Paul talking about the prayer life of the Thessalonians. This is Paul talking about his own prayer life. But he speaks these words in a way that makes it obvious that the Thessalonians absolutely would have been able to relate to what he's saying. Paul is saying that prayer is both the source and the promise of the spiritual greatness for a church. He's setting an example that clearly the Thessalonian church was already following by saying, I've made it a habit of my life to intercede for the saints. I'm praying for those believers who live in Thessalonica, and I'm doing it every time you come to my mind. <clears throat> One of the things that, that we can, that we should come out of this period of time in the 21st century with is we should come out of this time with a stronger daily habit of praying for one another as the people of God. Listen, if you're in a life group, you need to be praying for your life group members every single day. You need to be praying for the pastoral leadership of your church every single day. If you're in a Sunday school class and you've got a, a larger roster than a life group, you need to break that up and you need to pray for a portion of that class every single day until you systematically, over the course of several days, pray through everybody that you're connected with in that Sunday school class. If you serve in the preschool ministry or in the children's ministry or in the student ministry, you need to pray for those those uh, children or students who are under your care, under your charge, who have been placed under your influence. Listen, here's the thing. <clears throat> Sometimes God allows us to be in a position where the only thing we can do for each other is pray. Frankly, for many of us, that's where we are right now. If you're a senior adult, city of Tulsa says you need to stay home. So how do you carry out the ministry of the church? You begin to pray. And you carve out time every day. And you make it your job, your mission to pray. Maybe you work with little ones. Listen, our children don't understand what's happening. They don't know what's going on. You need to pray for families. 
for families how they're managing in this time of separation, of of close quarters, uh, of 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 concern about illness and 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 just having the supplies necessary to keep going forward. We will see Evergreen's greatness as we demonstrate Evergreen's commitment to prayer. I don't think there's ever been a more appropriate moment in the 20 years of our existence than this one to lift up one another, to intercede on behalf of the believers who make up this church. Find that group that you're responsible for and you take them every day before the throne of grace. That is the mark and identifying trait of a great church. A great church is identified by its position and by prayer, but a great church is qualified by some things. Look at the next verses. Verse 3. Paul says, We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing your election, brothers loved by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. You know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. All right, let's talk about how to qualify a great church. He's going to delineate the marks of greatness. What it, he, He's going to tell us what church people are supposed to look like. That's what these verses describe. He's describing uh, the testimony that we should have. He starts by saying... I remember your election. In verse, uh, we'll come back to verse four, in verse three, but, but in verse four, he says, knowing your election, brothers loved by God. Okay, um, he's gonna talk about three things here, and it's the great, uh, triune collection of characteristics that he uses in other places. He's gonna talk about faith, love, and hope. Now, in first Corinthians, where we were, uh, he talked about that same that same list of three, only in 1 Corinthians it was faith, hope, and love. Well, that made sense because in the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul was emphasizing love. That was the trait of those three biggies that that he needed in that context because this was a church, the Corinthian church, was a church operating as a church. Uh, they were busy, they were active, they were doing a lot of churchy stuff, but they didn't have love. And so in, in Corinth, love was the one of the big three that Paul would emphasize. In the Thessalonian church, what we're going to find out is that faith and love are standard, but because he's going to talk to us through the Thessalonian church about last days, he's going to emphasize in this book hope. Now, there's really no way to define uh, a hierarchy here between faith, love, and hope, faith, hope, and love. They're all the basic characteristics of what a great church looks like. It's marked by a people of faith who practice love and live with hope. And it's just a matter of emphasis based on what needs to be uh, dealt with at the time. But he says, uh, you're qualified by your election. That's verse 4. I know your election, brothers loved by God. And then in verse 5, he's going to tell us about that election. Election is a word in the New Testament that throws people for a loop. I mean, it, it drives them crazy. They're like, oh, I don't know what that means. Is, is God just randomly picking? Paul's going to tell us 
Look at verse 5, and he's going to describe the process of election. He says, your brothers loved by God. And in verse 5, he says, for the gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. Verse 5 is in a single verse summary, the Apostle Paul describing the process of coming to salvation. I mean, look what he says. The gospel came to you in word. That is, it came to you as the testimony of a friend. It came to you as information from somebody that you cross paths with. It came to you in a lesson or a sermon that you happened to hear because you were in a place where it was being taught. The gospel came to you, first of all, in words. Somebody somewhere told you something you didn't know, and it was good news. But people hear the good news all the time. Paul says that's not the only thing necessary to this process of salvation. The gospel didn't come to you in word only. It also came to you in power. That is, it's a word that implies that you were granted the ability to recognize the word that was spoken to you as something important and significant. You ever had, ever had something come to you and, and sometime later you go, uh, somebody says, uh, hey, listen, uh, here's a stock tip. You should, you should buy this stock. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, I'll look into it. And then you, you you hear six months later a headline that some stock has just skyrocketed and and, and they're making a a billion dollars and you go oh that was that stock that they told me about you heard the words but whatever was going on in your life you didn't take the words you didn't recognize them as significant or as important in the in the process of salvation. There is God doing something in us that makes us able to not only hear the gospel, but to recognize that this is something I need to take notice of. This is something that has a a direct impact on my life. Paul says the gospel didn't come to you in words only, but also with a power that God made available so that you could actually not just hear the sound waves against your eardrums, but that you could hear it. You could take it in and it made sense to you. But he says, also in power and in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change. In the process of coming to follow Jesus, you have to hear the gospel. You have to recognize that the gospel is applicable and meaningful to you. And as you pray, it's the Holy Spirit of God that then effects the transformation in your heart that leads you to Christ. And he says, finally... And you receive the gospel with much assurance. That is the invisible conviction that something unseen but deeply important has just happened. When I've led people to the Lord, one of the questions that I always ask when they finish praying is I say, I say, what do you feel right now? And they use various language. They describe it in different ways. But but almost always they say something like, I feel clean. I feel different. I feel whole. 
all different words to describe that they've heard the gospel, that they recognize it as significant and applicable to them. They've asked for salvation and the Holy Spirit as the agent of change causes that transformation. And then with that comes this internal um, conviction that I'm different now than I was 10 minutes ago. That's what Paul is describing. Listen, a, a great church is not just a collection of people who show up at the same location at the same hour once or twice a week. The church, by definition, must be made up of people who who met the good news of the gospel. They recognized that it had significance for them. They were transformed by the Holy Spirit, and they live daily now with the conviction that they are fundamentally different people than they once were. That's the process. That's why at Evergreen, we require the reality of your testimony for membership, because we believe that the church is... um is a regenerate church membership. You don't get to be here without that experience of salvation that you have with Jesus. Your election, he says, going back to verse three in this, in this trinity of, of, of terms, he says, really, your election is your work of faith, or some translations read, your work produced by faith. Faith, that reality of encountering God and being made different, Faith always leads to works. It always produces something. There is a tangible expression of my faith as I live out. That's why, and I, and people get so upset. I asked somebody in my office one time, they were, they'd come for counseling and, and, uh, and we were talking and I said, I said, what makes you think you're a Christian? Oh my stars. I mean, they just went off. How dare you ask me that question? I said, well, I, I'm not trying to offend you, but you know, if I said, if I said, um, how do you know you're a Dallas Cowboys fan? That wouldn't be an offensive question, but you would say, well, I have season tickets and, 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 and I know all the, the members of the team and, 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 and I follow, uh, I have subscriptions to all the right websites and, and, and I watch them every week on television when I'm not at the games. You would be able to say how you have evidence that you're a Dallas Cowboy fan. I said, that's the same question. What makes you think you're a Christian? What's the evidence that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? And once they'd calmed down a little bit, they said, well, well, I was baptized when I was seven years old. Okay, great. Uh, anything more recent than that? Well, I went to church camp when I was a teenager. Good, good, good. Um, how old are you now? You're about 40 years old. Anything, anything in the last 25 years? I- anything that... That you can point to as evidence? Well, I just, I just know I am. Okay, that's what I'm asking. How do you know you are? You see, here's the thing. I really don't care what you tell me you know. The Bible is very clear and it doesn't make me a judgmental person to say this. The Bible is very clear, whether it's the book of James, whether it's 1 Thessalonians, 
or anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. Even Jesus, he said, people will know you belong to me when they see how much you love one another. In other words, when they see you put your faith on practical display, that will tell people that you follow me. Faith produces works. It means you put your, the reality of what's happened inside of you is on evidential display by the way you live your life. If there's no evidence, you better revisit that prayer that you prayed when you were seven years old because I suspect it doesn't mean anything. Faith produces works. It's a qualifying mark for a great church. That there are a people of faith who are putting that faith on display. He says your example is critical. Um, that, that next phrase in verse 3 says, your labor of love. The translation that I, that I prefer says, your labor prompted by love. The pattern forms the great cycle of discipleship. Christ comes to us. We grow in influence, and we touch the lives of other people, and those people grow in influence, and, 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 and the great cycle of discipleship broadens. Who's teaching you how to live the Christian life? Who is discipling you? Now, here's another question. Who are you discipling? Who are you teaching how to live the Christian life? So, I don't, I don't know how to teach people how to live the Christian life. Well... You ever trained anybody at your job on how to do something that you knew how to do and they were still learning? Do you ever teach a child how to use a fork, how to tie their shoes? I mean, it's built into human relationships. We teach all the time. Discipleship is nothing more than the process of learning from somebody who's a few steps ahead of me on the journey while I turn around and teach somebody who's a few steps behind me on the journey. Paul says a great church is qualified by faith that produces works. That is, a people who are regenerate, who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit in their hearts, and they are putting that on public display by the way they live their life. But then he says... A, a church, a great church is qualified by, by their love, the labor prompted by love. In other words, the things that they do in, in and for each other because they love. Let me, let me ask you this. What if I, what if I suggested that you check your schedule? Now maybe right now your schedule's a little out of whack because you're stuck at home or you're working at your dining room table or, or something. But think through your what we would call normal weekly schedule. I don't know that we've ever had a normal weekly schedule, but we all live with the illusion that there is something out there that's normal. Analyze your normal weekly schedule and see on a regular basis what you do for other people that's prompted just by love. Not what you do for your job, not what you do for a paycheck, not what you do because somebody employs you or, or hires you. What do you do for other people purely out of love? Because a great church, a great church is not only made up of followers of Jesus, faith-filled, regenerated believers, 
But a great church is qualified by people who, motivated by love, are serving one another and the people around us. In the day that we live right now, man, that, the opportunities for that are, are huge. Your election, your example, but also your expectation. This is the last part of verse 3. He says, your endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope is not passive. It is a Christian trait that really has a kind of heroic constancy to it. Hope is what uh, what reveals that we have... Uh, we have trust that something is certain and will happen even though it hasn't happened yet. We believe that God's word is true and that everything that we know of God's track record in the past gives us the ability to stand with an unshakable certainty that everything that God has said about the future will come true because God is trustworthy. <coughs> Let's go back to the, let's go back to the, um, to the 17th chapter of Acts and find the, the connection, uh, to this church. In Acts chapter 17, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, Then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollo, Apollonia and came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. See, this is what I told you. Three weeks in a row, he shows up on the Sabbath and he reasons with them. He takes the scriptures and makes his case that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting on. This, he was explaining that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. In other words, there was a huge harvest in Thessalonica. There were people, there were Jews there who were persuaded by Paul's teaching. There were God-fearing Gentiles. That means Gentiles who were in the process of converting to Judaism. They were persuaded. And he says a a number of, of societal leading women, influential women... And they all came came to follow Paul's teaching. This is the core description of what will be uh, the start of a church, an assembly in the city of Thessalonica. Verse 5, but what always happened, the Jews became jealous and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Man, do we not live in a generation where people who can't out-argue the the truth of scripture uh their response is to put together some scoundrels to try and disrupt to try and uh interfere to try and uh break up our ability to do what we've been called to do that's always been a strategy for people who can't uh who can't win the debate attacking jason's house this is where paul was staying they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. In other words, this was a lynch mob. They were trying to find Paul and his traveling companions. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. 
Now listen, this is a raw, a mob, this is a riot, and they're behaving badly. But I, I gotta tell you, I, I would be thrilled at the accusation that these men have been turning the world upside down and they've come here too. Even the enemies of the gospel recognize that what we got, that what God was doing with Paul and his companions was in fact shaking up the old order. God was breaking into human history in a way that was revolutionizing Western civilization. Jason has received these men as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowd and the city of officials who heard these things. So taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. On arrival, get this, they help in the night, they help Paul and Silas escape from Thessalonica. Now, we're just about to do a letter. We're about to unfold, unpack a letter written to what I said was the fi- one of the finest churches of the New Testament era. An example of godly Christian influence in their, in their own setting. But understand the context of this great church was in a city that, that, that ran Paul out of town, rioting against the gospel. And yet the church not only survived, it became a model of regional influence. We do not have to be afraid of opposition in our generation. Paul escapes with Silas. They go to the next town over, which is a city called Berea. And what do they do? Do they hide? Do they keep a low profile? Do they, do they try and let everything blow over? No. It says on arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul said, look, we're in a new city. We got a new synagogue. We got people that need to hear the gospel. Let's get on with things. The people here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. You see, Paul says, the, uh, Luke tells us that the Bereans were more noble-minded because instead of just rejecting Paul's message out of hand... They, um, uh, they searched the scriptures. They analyzed his words. They were reasonable. Well, by searching the scriptures and comparing what Paul was teaching, they came to Christ in great numbers. One of these days, we're going to get to heaven. I want the follow-up story of the church in Berea that we're not given in the New Testament. We don't have any letters that Paul wrote to that church, although I don't doubt that he wrote letters to them. They just haven't been preserved for us. But if Thessalonica was a great church, I think the Bereans might have been even greater. One of these days, maybe we'll find out. Well, Paul says, your endurance (coughs) was inspired by hope. They had accepted Christ, even though they knew that meant persecution in their city. It meant social alienation. It probably meant some of those leading people in society were going to lose their standing in the community. That's why we have to understand the church is not a club we join. 
It's not a retirement plan we subscribe to. It's not a competition we enter to win a trophy. The church is a family of love where we serve one another even when the culture around us hates who we are. That's a great church. Faith in God's final promise caused them to be immensely loyal. That's why love is the emphasis of Corinthians. But in Thessalonians, Paul's going to keep hammering hope because hope is the certainty of what's coming. And that gives us the courage to live the life we've been called to live today within a community of people who are just like us. Well, finally, he's going to tell us about a great church being magnified. Look at verse 7. He says, a great church is magnified by modeling God's message. Here's the bottom line of of these closing verses of the chapter. When God is pleased with the church, he's going to be sure that the news about that church gets around. God is our best public relations man. He is our, our, our best advertiser. Uh, I, I went to a church growth seminar one time that was entirely dedicated to branding and marketing. They talked about billboards and they talked about radio advertisements and television commercials. They talked about all the ways to, to get the name of your church out in the community. We've never done much of that at Evergreen. Because I believe that when a church is a great church... God makes sure the news gets out. That's what he, that's what happened here. Look at this closing, these closing verses. In verse seven, it says, as a result, meaning because you're marked by faith that, that, that has evidence, because you're marked by labor that comes out of love, because you're marked by a hope that produces an endurance, because you have the marks of a great church, As a result, he said, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Wow. He says this church is a prototype of what a church should be. You're a model. It's the word that implies uh, the stamp on a coin a die stamp that puts the image, the the symbols on a coin and and makes it permanent. You are a, a model of what everyone else should look like. And the news of your church rang out. It's the sound of the clear peal of a bell that can be heard, frankly, over two provinces. He says, everybody in Macedonia and Achaia knows about this church. Why? Because when God is proud of a church, he puts the news on quick travel. He gets the word out and it travels quickly. Listen, these two provinces that Paul mentions, they covered hundreds of miles. We're not talking about uh, about a Tulsa church being known in Broken Arrow. We're talking about a Tulsa church being known in Texas, being known in Missouri, being known in Tennessee. We're talking about uh, uh, an influence that that, that, that that covers hundreds of miles because God has put the effectiveness of that church on display and he's gotten the word out. Listen, I told you this is the only New Testament church that's been set forth as a pattern for other churches. When God is pleased with the church, when it is a great church, God gives it greater influence. 
Not only modeling God's message, but ministering God's grace. Look at the last part of verse 8. He says, therefore, we don't need to say anything. Paul says we don't travel around and say, hey, let me tell you about the church in Thessalonica. Every time he starts a discussion that way, let me tell you about the church in Thessalonica. The answer is, oh, hey, hey, we already know. We've already heard about that church. He said, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turn from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He said, your testimony is out there. Thessalonica was the talk of every Christian assembly in that part of the Roman Empire. Their ministry to Paul was was well known. Their reception of the gospel, their activities in the church. Listen, I'm this is not about patting evergreen on the back, but I want to tell you one of the one of the most profound things that that, that happens to me on a fairly regular basis is when I go, particularly to denominational meetings. I was in Oklahoma City for um, uh, a meeting. Uh, a state convention meeting a couple of years ago, and a guy uh, came up to me that I didn't know, that I'd never met, and he said, hey, are you Michael Gabbard? And I said, yeah. And he goes, and, and you pastor Evergreen in Tulsa? And I said, yeah, that's that's the church I pastor. And he said, can, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Yeah, sure. And we sat down, and this is what he said to me. He said, I was talking to so-and-so in the state convention office about some problems in my church and how I needed to handle them. And they said, go find Michael Gabbard and find out how Evergreen is doing it because I think that will help you in your church. Now listen, before you think, well, Pastor, that'll, that'll give you a big head. You'll be all proud. No, let me tell you my response to that. My response to that was, dear Lord, what have you done? I'm still trying to figure out how to pastor the people you've given me. I, I'm not smart enough to solve the problems of other churches. And yet I see God crossing my path with other pastors to have conversations. He is giving us influence. And I figured out a long time ago, they're not coming to hear my brilliance They're coming to hear my experience of following the leadership of the Holy Spirit in doing church. And I just take them to the Word of God and I say, okay, let's talk about what the church looks like. Let's talk about what 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 the blueprint of a church is in the New Testament. It is a remarkable experience that you need to know God is giving us a reputation and with that reputation an extended influence. That is not to cause us to pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, we are really something. That is an awesome responsibility that means we better be diligent about being a great church because God wants us to be the source of instruction, the source of encouragement, the source of assistance to struggling collections of believers who don't know what they're doing or what they need to do next. Paul told the Thessalonians, your influence is far beyond what you ever dreamed. But he doesn't pat them on the back and say, kick back, you've accomplished it, you have arrived. 
He wants them to keep doing what they're doing and to keep striving to do it better because as we do what we do better and better, as we figure out how to pastor and how to lead and how to be in community in this new normal that's coming, God is going to continue to give us an influence far beyond the membership roles of our church. And we need to be prepared for that. He says, you've modeled God's message, you've ministered God's grace, but you're also maintaining God's promise. Look at verse 9 and and the last verse in verse 10. He says, they know how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. In other words, he says, Your story is significant. You converted from paganism, you came into Christianity, and you have lived a life of faithful endeavor and endurance. That's important for you being ready to be rescued from the coming wrath. Listen, I don't know that that Evergreen has come out of the kind of paganism that the church in Thessalonica knew, but, but I tell you something about our story. Our story involves hundreds of people who have their own individual accounts of their salvation experience, how they have tried to imitate Jesus in their own lives, how they have collected together in a place called Evergreen to establish a biblical model of community, of ecclesia, of the assembly, and how they are seeing miracles happen. In the lives of our families and in the ministries that we touch. All I know is this. I've waited my whole life to be a part of a great church. And I think God has given us that at Evergreen. Not so that we can kick back and just sort of cruise the rest of the way. But because for all those poor churches out there, not having a real impact on the culture in this generation, God has given us the incredible privilege of having influence and impact. We say at Evergreen that our, our motto here is, is uh, knowing God, sharing life, and changing the world. I think as we have come to know God better, as we have practically learned to share life more, I very much think that in 2020, with everything that's happening around us, God is raising up a people and giving them an opportunity to truly, in this generation, Change the world. Hold on, because the ride we're about to take is going to be awesome. Stay safe. Stay connected. God bless Evergreen.